In this podcast, we're going to focus on a Supreme Court case, Fry versus Napoleon. And the reason I'm highlighting this court case in the third week of our course, as we're just about to wrap up, is because it involves the nuances of how all three special education laws that we focused on in this course interplay and can work together to truly protect a child. Um, and it's it's very important to know how do these how do these laws work together. So the way I'm going to approach this is I'm going to read an article from Education Week that really captures the background of the case, and then we'll reflect on the Supreme Court decision. So the article. Took, uh, was written in 2016. This is, a, this is a very recent court case, and it's called Service Dog Center Stage in Major Special Education Case. And so I found it in Education Week, and I thought it was such a resource when I went looking for what were the ins and outs of this case? Why didn't the principal want the dog in the school? When I really went looking for those questions, this article really answered a lot of the questions, which is why I chose it. So here we go. When the U.S. Supreme Court hears Elena Fry's case on October 31, 2016, the now 12-year-old girl with cerebral palsy will be in the audience, though she no longer requires the service dog at the center of her federal disability rights case against a Michigan school district. The district refused to allow the animal to accompany Elena when she was in kindergarten. Wonder, a fluffy golden doodle who helped Elena with her mobility for seven years, including several years at a neighboring district that welcomed the dog, will also be in Washington. The retired service dog will perhaps make an appearance outside the Supreme Court after the oral arguments in Fry versus Napoleon Community Schools. Elena's parents and lawyers felt it would be disingenuous to claim that the girl needed the dog in the Supreme Court when she no longer relies on him in school. Wonder gave her the mobility support that she needed to learn how to move throughout her environment, Stacy Fry, Elena's mother, said here recently. She was able to pull to stand using him. She was able to transfer from her walker to her chair, utilizing him as the bridge. Eventually, that working relationship developed into Elena being able to figure out how to do it on her own. The central question in the family's underlying lawsuit is whether school officials discriminated against the girl in violation of the American with Disabilities Act of 1990 and the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 when they refused, aside from a short trial period, to allow Wonder to aid Elena in school. In taking up the case, the justices will address a fairly technical but important question arising out of that suit whether the Fry family must exhaust administrative remedies under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act before they can pursue their suit for damages under the other federal disability laws. We didn't dispute the fact that she was receiving an appropriate education under the IDEA, said Michael J. Steinberg, the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, which represents the Fry family. That was never an issue here. What we contended was that Elena was entitled to bring her dog as an accommodation to help her become independent. We argue that we didn't need to exhaust the administrative remedies of IDA, which are very time-consuming, emotionally draining, and can be expensive. The district pushes back. Neil Catyell, a Washington lawyer representing the Napoleon District and the Jackson County Intermediate School District, 
an educational service agency that serves multiple districts on special education and other matters, says in a brief that Congress struck a balance between the IDEA and other laws that protect the rights of children with disabilities. While the main federal education, federal special education law does not limit students' rights under the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act, it does require that if parents seek relief that is also available under the IDEA, they must first attempt to obtain that relief through the IDEA's procedures, the school district brief says. A victory for the Fries in the case would mean a revival of their lawsuit and the chance to have the courts declare that Elena and other children in her position may bring their service dogs to school. Such complexities of federal civil rights laws were far from the minds of Brent and Stacy Fry in 2009 as they prepared for their then five-year-old Elena to enter school at Ezra Eby Elementary School in the Napoleon District, which is some 30 miles west of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Elena was born in India and, and adopted by the Fries just before her first birthday. As she approached school age, Elena received a prescription for a service dog to help with spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy, a severe form of the disease that limits her motor skills and mobility, but not her cognitive abilities. A service dog could help steady Elena as she moved about with a walker, could pick things up for her and perform other tasks. We sought to get a service dog for her so that she could reach a level of as much independence as possible, said Stacy Fry, 38, who recently went back to work in clinical research at the Division of Rheumatology at the University of Michigan. The Fries had turned to the local community to raise $13,000 to pay for the 10 days of training that Elena and Wonder would have to undergo together. The dog himself, which was donated to the family by an organization called For Paws for Ability, had undergone more than a year of training as a service animal. We were very pleased to have people who donated their time and their energy, said Brent Fry, a soft-spoken 39-year-old former sales manager for Kellogg Company, who is facing his own medical challenge. He is battling a form of brain cancer. The Fries believed that the Napoleon District would welcome the dog, based on signals from the principal at Ezra Eby Elementary. But in, two, in October 2009, when Elena brought Wonder to school for the first time, they met a different reaction. After one day, the parents were told that the principal had received complaints that some students were fearful of the dog. The district told them it needed more time to research the issue. By December, school officials told the Fries that Elena did not need a service dog in school because under her Individualized Education Program for Special Education Services, she had a one-to-one -one educational aid who could perform the same tasks as wonder, court papers say. School officials, officials were also concerned, court documents indicate, about student and staff allergies to the dog, about disruption in the classroom, especially for children as young as Elena's kindergarten peers, and about phobias that some students had of dogs. Jim Graham, the superintendent of the Napoleon District, declined an interview request via email, citing advice from the district's lawyers. Cat Yell, a former acting U.S. Solicitor General under President Barack Obama, who will argue the district's case in the Supreme Court, also declined to comment. Francisco Negron, Jr., the General Counsel of the National School Boards Association, which has filed a friend of the court brief on, on the side of the Napoleon District, said in an inter interview that schools may have legitimate concerns about how a younger student controls a service dog 
and whether children will be continuously distracted by the presence of a large animal or of an animal in the classroom such that their education may be impacted. These are all issues that the school district takes into consideration and may be one of the reasons why a school district may opt for not including a service animal, but having a one-on-one aide who would perform the same functions and not have, say, for instance, the same kind of distraction or perhaps subject other students to allergies and the like, Negron added. By early 2010, the ACLU of Michigan got involved in negotiating with school officials on behalf of the Fry family, and the district agreed to a trial period for Wonder to come to school that lasted from mid-April until the end of Elena's kindergarten year. The Fries maintained that Elena was not allowed to fully use Wonder as a service dog during the trial period. The dog had to remain at the back of the classroom with a handler and was kept from helping Elena with tasks such as using the restroom or from accompanying her to recess or the library. That takes away from the working relationship, Stacy Fry said. At the end of the kindergarten year, the Napoleon District informed the Fries that Elena's service dog would not be allowed to return the next fall. That's kind of where we decided to go in a different direction for her education, Brent Fry said. The Fries homeschooled Elena for two years using an online curriculum. In the meantime, they filed a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, which investigated. In May 2012, the OCR issued a determination letter that the school districts, both Napoleon and the Jackson Intermediate District, violated the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act by failing to modify their policies, practices, or procedures to permit the student's service animal to accompany her to and assist her at school, thus denying and or significantly limiting the student's ability to access the district's programs and activities with as much independence as possible. The two districts sign an agreement in which they pledge to allow Wonder into school to fully accompany and assist Elena throughout the school day. By that time, however, the Fries felt that the Napoleon district was not the best place for their daughter. That fall, Elena and Wonder were welcomed into the Manchester, Michigan district, 20 minutes to the east of Napoleon. Elena, along with her two older brothers, attended at first under a state school choice program before the Fries eventually moved into the district. The Fries have five children from ages three to 16, three dogs, including Wonder, two cats, and an assortment of other animals at their home. At Clager Elementary School in Manchester, Wonder was given his own staff ID card and featured in the school yearbook. Jennifer Mays was principal of the elementary school when Elena was there before both moved to Manchester Middle School last year, where Elena is now in sixth grade. Our district has had two different service animals in the past few years, both at the elementary and the middle school, and we just welcome our students and their service animals with open arms, she said. Having a service animal at school is really non-intrusive. It's not a big deal at all. Another child at the middle school who has type 1 juvenile diabetes relies on a service dog to alert him to high or low blood sugar levels. Wonder, who is now nine and a half years old, retired just as Elena entered middle school last school year. He allowed her to find her voice, Stacy Fry said of the dog, before she often just waited to be told what to do. When she had control and was able to utilize him and she had to be the one in charge to tell him what to do, based on what she needed, she developed her voice. That allowed her to socially develop 
as well as to educationally develop. Back to school. Even though Elena is more independent now, Wanda remains a beloved family dog and a member of the Manchester school community. On a recent fall day, Elena arrived a few minutes late to teacher Irene Barnard's language arts class, moving steadily with her walker through the halls of Manchester High School. After the class worked in groups on a language arts lesson on their Chromebook laptops, Stacy Fry and the dog arrived for a prearranged visit. Look, it's wonder, said one student. Many of the middle school students had attended Clager Elementary with Elena, and they greeted the dog like an old friend. Elena confidently answered questions from other students about her dog. He opened doors, turned on lights. He could hit the wheelchair button, she said in response to a classmate's question. The students were happy to learn that because Wonder was no longer wearing his service vest, they were free to pet him. Just not all at once, said Barnard, the teacher. Think about how you would feel if 30 sixth graders came toward you to pet you. The one place that Elena felt the need to be accepted the most was school. And it was the one place that denied her that, Stacy Fry said in reference to her daughter's elementary school in Napoleon. We want to prevent that from happening to any other family. So that really captures the story, you know, the narrative behind this situation. And so now we look at the law. So when we review the law, we really just want to walk ourselves through the law. And so when we think of IDA, IDA offers federal funds to states in exchange for a commitment to furnish a free, appropriate public education, more concisely known as a FAPE, to all kids with certain physical and intellectual disabilities. That's obviously a rule. I'm sorry, you know, know, something that is a review for us. So then, you know, we think the other pieces that the instruction, both the special education and the related services, are tailored to meet this child's unique needs and sufficient supportive services to permit the child to benefit from the instruction. An eligible child, as this court has explained, acquires a substantive right to such an education once a state accepts the IDA's financial assistance. An IEP is the primary vehicle for for providing each child with with the promised FAPE. Most notably, the IEP documents the child's current levels of academic achievement, specifies measurable annual goals for how she can make progress in the general education curriculum, and lists the special education and related services to be provided so that she can advance appropriately toward those goals. And so when parents have an issue, which, you know, this is a common thing in special education that, you know, there will be times when there's challenges. And so when challenges arise, a dissatisfied parent may file a complaint as to any matter concerning the provision of a FAPE with the local or state educational agency. So first they file the complaint. Typically, that if there's still a disagreement, what will then happen is it'll go to mediation. And so at that point, there's a mediation process. Assuming their impasse continues, the matter proceeds to a due process hearing before an impartial hearing officer. Any decision of the officer granting substantive relief must be based on a determination of whether the child received a FAPE. Finally, a parent unhappy with the outcome of the administrative process may seek judicial review by filing a civil action in state or federal court. So of particular relevance to this case are two are the two anti-discrimination laws, Title II of the ADA and Section 504 of the 
of the Rehabilitation Act. Title II forbids any public entity from discriminating based on disability. Section 504 applies the same prohibition to any federally funded program or activity. Title II states that all public entities have to make reasonable accommodations to its policies, practices, or procedures when necessary to avoid such discrimination. Nothing in IDA shall be construed to restrict or limit the rights, procedures, and remedies available under the Constitution, ADA, or the Voc Rehab Act, you know, including Section 504. So IDA is, is not designed to restrict the protections under these other laws. However, there's a second piece to this. Before filing a civil action under any of the laws other than IDA, it's required that the family seek relief under IDA, meaning that IDA has to be exhausted to the same extent as would be required had the action been brought. Um, meaning, so you have to, they have to file their complaint or their lawsuit through IDA before they can complain, um, file the complaint using one of the other two anti-discrimination laws. So that had always been the case. They said it has to be exhaustive of IDA and you have to file these specific legal channels, which is why the Fries kept losing, okay? So then every time they would go through the court system, they would lose and they would say, um, you know, you didn't follow the appropriate channels. But what happened early on was when they didn't follow that channel, they went directly to the Office of Civil Rights and they said, our child's civil rights are being violated. OCR came in, did an investigation and agreed. And I really like the wording here because I think this really captures the special deep nuance of this situation. The office, so it says, let me find here. Following an investigation, OCR agreed. The office explained in its decision letter that a school's obligations under those statutes go beyond providing educational services. So they're saying, we're not talking about the appropriateness of her education. Therefore, we're not talking about IDA. We're talking about discrimination. So we're talking about ADA and Section 504. A school could offer a FAPE to a child with a disability, but still run afoul of the law's ban on discrimination. And these are the words that were really powerful in the op from the Office of Civil Rights. And here, OCR found Ezra Eby, which was the name of the school, had indeed violated that ban, even if its use of a human aid satisfied the FAPE standard. OCR analogized the school's conduct to requiring a student who uses a wheelchair to be carried by an aide or requiring a blind student to be led around by a teacher instead of permitting him to use a guide dog. Regardless whether those or Ezra Eby's policies denied a FAPE, they violated Title II and 504 by discriminating against children with disabilities. So the power of this is that this, this central piece of this, of this court case that they really had to analyze was it's not about FAPE. Therefore, they do not need to exhaust and go through the channels of IDA. If it's not about FAPE, which is the primary purpose of IDA, then they are allowed to argue and file suit 
under one of the other two discrimination laws and they don't need to go through these exhaust exhaust these other channels secondly you know in response to the ocr's decision the school said okay well you can come back but the fries became really concerned that the school administration would resent their daughter and make her return to school difficult so they found this other public school in a different district where everyone enthusiastically received her and her dog and they continued to argue that the first school had denied equal access, refusing to reasonably accommodate her needs and her use of a, of a service animal, and therefore discriminating against her as a person with a disability. In addition, they said, according to the complaint, that she suffered harm as a result of the discrimination, including emotional distress and pain, embarrassment, and mental anguish. So they said, we're just, we're not staying and we're going to go to this other district. So then they filed suit and they said, you know, we want money damages to compensate for her injuries. The district court granted the school district's motion to dismiss the suit. The suit. So they said, well, you didn't exhaust IDA. So it finally made its way up to the Supreme Court. And what they ended up deciding is this. So I'm going to read the Supreme Court decision. A federal statute called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act of IDEA requires states to offer special education services to children with disabilities. Because parents and schools often disagree about the services that law requires, it sets up a dispute resolution mechanism, administrative procedures that have to be given a chance to work before a parent can bring suit. Separate and apart from the IDEA, other federal laws protect all disabled people from discrimination, including children, and guarantee them equal access to public facilities. Now I'm just going to call those, st those statutes disability discrimination laws. So we do not have too many acronyms floating around here. Petitioner Stacy and Brent Fry have a daughter. She is called EF and EF has a disability, a form of cerebral palsy. Because she needs assistance with various tasks, EF has a service dog named Wonder. EF and her parents wanted Wonder to go to school with EF so he could help her in all the ways he typically does. But the school said Wonder was not allowed, that instead teachers could help EF with everything she needed. The Fries sued the school under the disability discrimination laws I mentioned, not under the IDA. The question here is whether even so, the Fries first had to go through the administrative process that the IDA sets up, or to use the legal term, whether they had to exhaust the IDA's process. That question is addressed in a particular provision of the IDA, the exhaustion provision. It says that nothing in the IDA prevents people like the Fries from suing under discrimination laws. But it also says that sometimes people who want to use those laws have to first go through the IDA's administrative process. When is that? The statute says when a person is seeking relief that is also available under the IDA. This case boils down to what that phrase means. So what kind of relief is available under the IDA? The core requirement is something called a free and appropriate public education. That is what every state has to give a, to children with disabilities. And the only kind of relief available under the IDA is relief for the denial of a FAPE. You cannot get relief for anything else. That means whether people like the Fries have to exhaust the IDA's administrative process turns on whether they are seeking relief for the denial of a FAPE. If they are, then they have to exhaust the IDA's process, even though they are bridging their suit under an anti-discrimination law. But 
if they are alleging something else, not anything to do with special education, but just the denial of equal access to public facilities, then they do not have to exhaust. Now that raises some questions about how you tell the difference between the two. It is not always about the words people like the Fries use in their complaints. We want to know about the substance of their claims, not a bunch of labels. So how do you tell when the real substance, what the real substance of a claim is? One way is to ask a couple of hypothetical questions. First, could the trial have brought much of the same claim if the conduct had occurred at a public facility that was not a school, say a library or a theater? If the answer is yes, it suggests the suit is not about special education, really. It's more about discrimination and denial to access, of access. And second, could an adult, say a parent or someone who works at the school, sue the school for much the same thing as a family was suing for the child? If yes, that also suggests the claim is not really about special education. But when the answer to those questions is no, the suit probably is about the adequacy of educational services. And then you have to go through IDA's administrative process. Another factor we say to consider is the history of the dispute between the school and the parents. If the parents started the road of IDA's administrative process before suing, that can be strong evidence that the substance of the complaint is really about the denial of a special education. The Court of Appeals here did not do that analysis, so we vacate that court's decision and send the case back for further consideration of the Fry's complaint. Justice Alito has filed an opinion concurring in part and concurring in the judgment in which Justice Thomas joins. So that's the, the transcript of the announcement. And so I think it really captures how these three laws um, intertwine and how they extend these protections across the educational landscape. Okay, thank you for listening.